Krista and I have had a lot of conversation lately about a lesson that we keep learning about relationships throughout the course of our marriage. It's not a marriage lesson per se. It, it's something that matters in every relationship, whether it's friendship or roommates or parents and children, bosses and employees, teachers and students, casual acquaintances, really any relationship the health and satisfaction in any relationship in part depends on this one principle. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Probably for Krista and me, the first part of that, of having the courage to just forthrightly say what you mean is the most important part for us. See, we both hesitate to be super vocal about what we want or what we need or what we'd want to say to the other person. We often degenerate into, you know, kind of dropping hints and suggestions of what we would like the other person to know. And the problem we keep learning in our relationship is that that almost never works. <laughs> I mean, I, for one, I'm too, I'm too slow to pick up on most of Krista's hints and suggestions. And even when I get that she's trying to say something, we tend to listen to our partners through our own filter, through our own lens or our own desires. And so it gets distorted sometimes if it's not super clear. Or even when we're listening well, I think sometimes we are afraid that we've misunderstood the other person. And then when we're afraid, oftentimes we choose to do nothing instead of doing the wrong thing. It just turns out over and over again in our marriage, we have to keep reminding each other that the health and satisfaction of our relationship is going to depend in some significant measure on being courageous enough to say what we mean. Now, saying about it this week as I was thinking about the text that we're going to study this morning, the last teaching text in Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 7, where Paul, who has been dropping some hints and suggestions throughout the text we've been looking at in this New Normal series, he finally just comes out and says as clearly as he can what he's been meaning to say. So this whole series has been built on one core question. Paul has written this letter to say that Jesus came and lived and taught and died and was raised in part to set us free from a mentality of religious rule keeping. This idea that we have to earn or deserve God's love or approval by how religiously we follow God's rules. And Paul has said, listen, that, that is not at all a part of a life of faith, religious rule keeping. This is what the very first verse in this whole passage was this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free from religious rule keeping. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, the selfishness of sin. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So the core question for Paul is, if religious rule keeping is not a part of a life of faith, how do you make people act like Christians? How do you get them to live like Jesus instead of doing whatever they want? Paul says, you are free from religious rule keeping, but don't use that as an excuse to live however you want in the selfishness of sin. Instead, Use that as a reason to live the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. And Paul's point is we all have a choice. In being freed from religious rule-keeping, we can either choose 
the selfishness of sin, and it shows up in things like sexual selfishness, in loving things more than God, um, in the your party lifestyle was another example Paul used, or Paul's big example, behaviors that destroy relationships and community. Or you can use your freedom to live the self-sacrificing love of Jesus, things like love and joy, being a peacemaker, being patient with difficult people, being kind and good and faithful even when relationships are hard and gentle instead of harsh, even when you're frustrated, living out of this sort of spirit-empowered self-control. Those are our choices. And what Paul has hinted at in my reading almost 10 times, Paul has said, the choice that you make will tell you everything about where your faith is at with Christ, and there will be consequences to that choice. That's what he comes out and flatly says in Galatians 6 verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself. God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what they sow. A person reaps what they sow. It sounds like Paul is teaching karma. <laughs> you know, the way we talk about it in popular culture, that karma is sort of this principle of spiritual cause and effect, that your attitudes and intentions and actions that you live out in the world will shape your future experience of life. It's kind of like whatever you put out into the universe, the universe is going to give back to you as either revenge or reward. And I, I want to be clear, the Bible does not teach karma. Karma is the opposite of grace. The principle of karma is you will eventually get exactly what you deserve. Grace says that because of God's love through Jesus Christ, you will be spared from what you deserve. That those uh, for those who have put their faith in Christ, God knows that all of us have failed to live up to the Jesus standard of love with our lives. And yet, God's not keeping score. He's not running a tally. He's not holding a grudge or preparing to take out revenge. For those who put their faith in Christ, God has wiped the slate clean in forgiveness. And he's, God has given us the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to change who we are becoming so that we are becoming people who are more and more like Jesus. And God is leading us into a future where selfishness is a part of our past and our lived experience is more and more the experience of love in this life and then an eternity where our experience is nothing but love in the presence of God. God, by grace, is rescuing us from our own fallenness. And we just need to accept it by faith in Christ. That is grace. But what Paul is saying is, whether or not we choose to accept that grace will have consequences. In verse 8, he says, Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. It says, listen, those who choose to use their freedom from religious rule keeping to live a Jesus-shaped life of self-sacrificing love, they will reap a reward 
for their faithfulness to Jesus. If we choose to live lives that are rooted in love and joy and peace and patience and so on, our experience will be increasing amounts of love and joy and peace and patience, increasing amounts of intimacy with God, increasing amounts of humble um, self-love because God loves us increasing amounts of joy that comes out of living in relationships that are rooted in love, increasing amounts of of satisfaction, of being a part of bending the world towards love, even watching the planet heal as more and more of us learn to love God's creation in self-sacrificing ways. We will experience more love if what we choose is love. But Paul says, if what you choose is selfishness, you will experience the way that selfishness can break the power of love. You will experience brokenness in your, in your experience of God's love. You will have a harder time experiencing a healthy love for yourself. You will experience brokenness in your relationships with people, in, in the what you contribute to the direction the world and humanity is going. We'll experience brokenness in our planet if what we choose is selfishness. Paul says that it is always true that we reap the consequences of the choice that we make with what to do with our freedom. Now, obviously, people don't always reap those consequences immediately. There's a psalm in the Old Testament. I think it's Psalm 72 or 73, where someone who is a priest in the temple is reflecting on their own life that is devoted to serving and loving God and leading others and serving and devoting and loving God. And the psalm starts with the priest saying, God, sometimes I wonder what's the point. Because I look around and I see people who make evil choices and yet they're prospering and they seem happy in life. And sometimes I wonder why I'm breaking my back trying to serve and love you and lead others in serving and loving you. It doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a purpose. What do I get out of it? And as you read the psalm, the psalmist eventually comes to a place where he recognizes, no, no, God's justice always reigns in the end. We will always experience now in this life and after this life for eternity the consequences of what we chose to do with our freedom. Did we choose selfishness or self-sacrificing love by the power of the Holy Spirit? And so obviously as the letter comes to a close, Paul is urging us to choose love. He says in verse 9, Let us not become weary in doing good, For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. He says, let's not become weary in doing good. Goodness, a couple weeks ago, Mandy pointed out that goodness was a fruit of the Spirit. It's it's a part of what God does in our lives. Paul's not saying, go be good. He's saying, walk with the Spirit and let the Holy Spirit Produce the life-giving goodness of Jesus in your life. Goodness is an interesting word. The Greek word is kalos, and it includes three ideas. It's doing what is morally right, what, what makes a difference in other people's lives for the better. It means 
doing what is healthy out of a healthy place in your soul. And it means doing things that are beautiful, that are moving and awe-inspiring in the way that they are, they are a gift to others. Paul says, what God is inviting us into because of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is a life in which we are committed, in which the shape of our life is a life in which we pour the life-giving goodness of Jesus into the world. And we do it unflaggingly. He says, don't get weary of doing good and give up. Don't, doing good, even when it comes from reliance on the strength and power of the Holy Spirit, doing good is a tiring thing. It can be exhausting. It can be frustrating. It can um, feel hopeless. It, it can get you to the point where you start asking the question, what is the point it doesn't make any difference. The world seems just as lousy a place today as it was yesterday when I, when, before I did this good thing. Or what is the point? I feel like I'm in it all on my own. I feel like I'm the only one out there who's fighting for goodness, who's trying to make a difference. How come I've been doing my part and nobody else seems to be doing their part? You know what? I'm just going to let someone else take their turn. And you end up giving up. Paul says, don't get tired, don't get discouraged, don't get frustrated with a life of pouring the life-giving goodness of Jesus. Don't give up, don't stop, don't just one day check out and unplug, um, though it's tempting to do so. This is one of the reasons why I think it's interesting that goodness is healthy behavior that comes out of a healthy place in your soul. You have to be a healthy person in order to never get tired of doing good. See, not growing weary of doing good is different than always saying yes in every circumstance to every good thing that should be done. Even when it comes to pouring the life-giving goodness of Jesus into the world. God's pattern is six days of work and one day of rest. Self-care matters. Spiritual care matters. Being healthy in your soul is the only way that we can give the healthy behaviors of goodness to the world. But Paul's point is, let the general shape of your life, as long as you have strength in life, let it be devoted to pouring with the Spirit's help and in the Spirit's power, the life-giving goodness of Jesus into the world to everybody. Yeah, you, you heard that last part, right? In verse 10, he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to whom? To all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Let us do good to all people. That Greek word all is an interesting one. It's a Greek word, pantas. And it means um, all, without exception. All means all. Every body, every one, every person. Let us do good to every single person. Not just to the people we know, not just to the people we like, not just to the people who like us, 
not just to the people we know will pay us back, not just to the people that we agree with, not just to the people that we approve of as though that was any of our business. Paul says, do good to every single one, to those you don't know, to those you don't like, to those who don't like you, to those who will never pay you back, to those with whom you disagree, to those of whom you disapprove, as though that was any of our business. It's actually only in as much as we are willing to love every single one indiscriminately and the same do we demonstrate that we are genuinely children of God. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I tell you, love your enemies, those who don't love you back, and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be shown to be children of your Father, God in heaven. God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If putting our faith in Christ and receiving the gift of God's love in our life means that we are filled with the power and presence of God's life in the Holy Spirit, then what ought to spill out of our lives is God's life. And how does God live? God lives by loving every single one indiscriminately. Loving without distinction, restriction, limitation, or boundary. Loving every single one. Paul says that's what our doing good, pouring the life-giving goodness of Jesus into the world, ought to be just as indiscriminate as God's because it is God's life that's pouring out of us. But he says it should especially happen within the family of faith. If we love Jesus, we're going to love the people Jesus loves, which is everyone. But if we love Jesus, we're going to especially love the people who love Jesus. The people that God has given to us as spiritual brothers and sisters, spiritual siblings of all kinds within the family of faith. The people with whom we have been united by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says within the community of faith, there is no hatred. There's no such thing as being against someone. Makes no sense. There are no warring factions. There is no selfishness that leads to self-promotion. There's no anger and rage when you don't get your way. There's no malice and envy towards people who do get their way. All there is within the community of faith is love and the joy that flows and the peace that gets made and patience even when people are difficult and kindness and goodness and faithfulness when relationships get hard and gentleness instead of harshness, even when I'm frustrated and a self-control that can only be explained as coming from the Holy Spirit. That's what it looks like for people to experience life within the family of faith when we are using our freedom to choose self-sacrificing love like Jesus instead of the selfishness of sin. What happens is we become one, as we heard last month. Just as Jesus and the Father are one, we experience unity in the midst of our diversity. 
where everyone is given the opportunity to be welcomed and included in the family of faith, even though they believe and behave and practice their faith differently than me. And the watching world looks into the community and what it sees is something that they have only seen in fits and starts, in glimpses and glances um, elsewhere. What they see is what human community looks like when it is filled with experiencing and expressing the love of God through the life of Jesus, by the power of of the Spirit, in a way that we could never do on our own, but could only do because God has invaded our lives and our community. By grace, we have been set free from religious rule-keeping. And now the question is, how will you use your freedom? Will you use it for the selfishness of sin? Or will you use it by the Spirit for the self-sacrificing love of Jesus, where we simply give ourselves to pouring the life-giving goodness of Jesus into each other's lives and into the life and the lives around the world? Because that's what grace looks like when it has been experienced and expressed. Let's pray. Father, we want to become Jesus' people. The people who belong to Jesus by faith because of your love and grace. And the kind of people who look like Jesus in the way we live your loving grace into the world. Would you teach us to walk in cooperation with your spirit, to experience and express that loving grace with each other? And would you allow us to drown in the loving grace that we experience as a result? Would you allow that to overflow our walls and to spread around the world so that the whole world would see the beautiful gift of your loving grace being received and shared by us and by those who call themselves by the name of Jesus here and around the world. Show the world the beauty of your love. In us and through us, we pray. Amen.